Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would read some patron emails here. But before we do that, I'll introduce the podcast. This is called the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is from patron Dylan. Dylan writes, I was curious if you could speak briefly about the experience of feeling judged or having your competence questioned by clients as a beginning therapist. They might ask how long you have been a therapist, or they might bring up how young you look. Some clients simply recognize that having a less experienced therapist is a trade-off for for accessing free services. Others, not so much. It's difficult to take their expressed doubts in stride when you're already personally questioning your suitability for this career path. End of email. Yeah, Dylan, um, very common question that I get. And um, yeah, so to summarize, you're saying, I feel insecure, I'm a beginning therapist, and some clients um, might call me out or do call me out, and I don't know what to do with all this. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, research topics, imposter syndrome, feelings of inadequacy, countertransference, all this kind of stuff. But um, I want to talk about, as a way of answering this question, my dissertation. So in my dissertation, I studied difficult clinical moments for seasoned therapists. So these are therapists who are 20, 30 years into their career, and I interviewed them for an hour or two and asked them to describe what it was like for them as they went through difficult clinical moments. And there were six themes. And the the second theme that the most uh, the the second the first the most common theme that I heard from people was fear as seasoned psychotherapists went through difficult clinical moments, all, of the, all 10 of my participants said that they went through a, a, a pretty big sense of fear. They had deer in headlights or that sort of thing. Well, the second theme, the second most common theme, was feeling of, feelings of inadequacy. It was uh, theme two out of six themes, and eight out of 10 of the participants described uh, feelings of inadequacy. They um, described feeling insecure or useless or incompetent or a lack of confidence or embarrassed or shame for failing as a therapist. Some of the therapists recalled feeling particularly inadequate and insecure as a consequence of being new to the field. So when I asked these seasoned therapists, um, a number of them were like, about their difficult clinical moments, a number of them recalled moments that happened at the beginning of their career. One person, there's a quote from one person. In those early days, I had so many insecurities and there wasn't a lot to hold on to. So, so a number of them pointed to like, yeah, it was difficult when I first started out and difficult moments happened partially because of the fact that I was new and I didn't have confidence. Some of them reported feeling shameful about their perceived inadequacy and didn't want to admit that they were feeling incompetent or insecure. And um, one person talked about how he would rely on having an academic stance. He would talk about how he would try to mask his feelings of inadequacy by seeming very academic. And when he looked back on it, he just thought that was that was kind of an interesting way of defending against this inner sense of, of inadequacy. So, so that was something that I found. I wasn't looking for that. I was just, it was an open-ended phenomenological study and I was just 
you know, going to uh, report what I heard. And so when I just asked the open-ended question, what was it like to go through difficult moments for you? Eight out of 10 of them talked about feelings of inadequacy. I didn't prompt them to talk about that. So it's very normal. And actually, research has looked into the uh, rate or the prevalence or the experience of feelings of inadequacy for therapists. And what they find is that therapists throughout their career, it doesn't even matter if they're new, will often have feelings of inadequacy. It's just one of those things. I told uh, someone recently that, and I say this all the time to people, is that when I was in graduate school, I remember the topic of feeling inadequate came up when I was at Antioch. And I remember someone saying, or maybe multiple people saying, that you don't really feel confident in this profession until you've been in it for five years. And I remember being in graduate school and thinking, five years, that's insane. Um, you know, surely after, I don't know, six months, I'll feel, I'll feel confident in this job, right? Five years, because at the time I was 24 and had the longest job I'd ever had was like nine months. And so I was like, I couldn't even conceive of having a job for nine months, let alone that it would take that long to feel confident. And then I proceeded with my career and would have lots of feelings of inadequacy. And then I remember one day I was driving in my car and I was thinking about my work and I suddenly realized that I hadn't really had a profound feeling of inadequacy in a while. And I remember noting that. I was like, huh, I I haven't felt inadequate. I haven't felt like a piece of shit therapist for a while. Hmm. And then I thought, well, I remember hearing in graduate school that it took five years. How long has it been? Guess what? It was exactly five years, <laughs> including my internship. So it was like four years after graduation. I was mind blown. <laughs> I was like, wait, that person said five years. It's on the dot, man. That's crazy. So there's just so much to do as a therapist. It's a big job. And there's almost no way to know the best course of action, even when you have experience. I mean, one could argue that the way in which therapists overcome their feelings of inadequacy is recognizing and accepting the fact that none of us know what we're doing at any particular moment. There's no way to know. When you are, I always bring up the profession of plumber. I, maybe I secretly want to be a plumber. I did do plumbing. I've talked about that um, when I was renovating a house once. But I think when you are a plumber, you know when you've done a good job, right? Someone has a leak or there's a, a, an install of a supply to you know a faucet and you show up you, you know, you turn on the, you do your work, you turn on the faucet, it works, everything's great. And you walk away and you say, yep, I did a good job. And I know why I did a good job. It's because I did this and I did that, this and I did that. When you're a therapist, there's nothing, nothing as concrete as that. It doesn't even come close. There are times when you could argue that all of us are doing nothing because there's no way to measure. It's very, it's very difficult to measure outcomes in our profession unless you're working on something fairly discreet like depression or anxiety. But even then, you know, it's a lot of client report, self-report. So it's um, even then debatable as to whether or not you can really hang your hat on that. But the vast majority of cases and clients that I work with and all my supervisees work with and all my colleagues work, work with are fairly ambiguous, you know. So a couple comes in and says, we're, we're having some conflict and we're thinking about divorcing. Well, how do you measure whether or not therapy worked? You know, some would say, well, if they, if they stay together, well, is that really success? 
What if they break up? That could be success too, depending on how you want to define success. I mean, obviously you wouldn't say, I hope they break up, but you could say, I, I hope that they find clarity in their choices of whether or not they should be together or not. Um, if they're fighting less, do you know they're fighting less? Um, if they're saying they're closer, how, do you know they're closer or do they just saying they're closer? So, you know, it's, there's, there's just so many things that make it difficult for us to evaluate success and know what to do to even get to success. Now, this isn't to say that I walk around wondering if I'm doing any good. I, I absolutely know as a therapist, and I know all my colleagues are doing a lot of good. Um, the, the single biggest indicator is when a client says, I like coming to therapy, it helps my life. <laughs> I mean, that's all that I'm looking for, really. And so, and you know, that's what I do when I go to therapy. I'm not looking for a particular goal. I just want to talk about things, feel better, have more clarity, get some support, get some perspective and, you know, be able to, you know, endure the suffering of life, which therapy helps me with and it helps my clients with. Anyway, so it, because of this uh, ambiguity, it's hard for every therapist and particularly novice therapists to cope with this. And again, I think part of it is because novice therapists are used to working at jobs that have discrete and concrete ways of measuring success and what to do. When you are a waiter at a restaurant, you take the food out and you put it in front of the person and they eat it and then you take the plate away. There's a procedure to it. Therapy is nothing like that. I mean, there's procedures to having them sign your disclosure statement or termination or something like that. But 99.999% of what you do in therapy has no procedure. It's just completely open-ended and it's up to you to make the choice. And there's billions of choices you can make. And your client also is directing a lot of what's happening. So there's, you're just reacting from one moment to the next. And, it's, and it could be argued that you're doing the wrong thing. And you would have a hard time refuting that because it's hard to measure, right? So it's normal, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, patron, uh, what was your name? Patron Dylan. Totally normal to have those feelings. Um, but... So you also ask about how to, well, okay, well, let me stick with this for just a bit more. So get some support, talk about it, um, get with other novice therapists, get with supervisors who can help you with those feelings. It's, it's good to have those feelings. But the specific question you're asking is, well, how do you, how do you deal with clients who are questioning you? Well, this, this, the best thing you can do, and I say this to all my supervisees, is just admit that they're right. Don't try to fight it. I, I see so many novice therapists will come to me and say, you know, my client looked at me and said, you look so young, and I didn't know what to say. And what I say is, is just say, yeah, I am young. <laughs> just say, yep, you're right, I'm young. Um, you don't have to do it in a passive-aggressive way. You're just like, yep, I'm young. And then you could say, do you have a concern about that? The, the best way you can come across as competent is to be able to admit that, you're, that you have issues of competence. And one of the worst ways you can react to accusations of incompetence is to try to defend yourself. It's just one of the worst ways. You know, if you walk up to someone, uh, you know, if uh, a client walks up to a therapist and is just like, so you're an intern, which means you're brand new to this profession and you look like you're 23. Um, how could you possibly be good at this job? 
So there are two different options to this, to this, two different main options. One is just to be like, um, well, I know what I'm doing because uh, I'm a good therapist and uh, I just, I'm, I'm just good, you know? So don't, you know, cause there's really nothing you can say because you don't have a lot. There's, how do you defend yourself in a situation like that? Especially if it's in, you're in the first couple months of being a therapist, you know, you can't, you can't claim that you're any good. You can't prove that. You can't prove that you've done any good in the world because you probably haven't had enough time to actually help any clients yet. So, and you might look like you're 23 or you might actually be 23. So, you know, it's the, how are you going to defend against that? So, so that's one approach. The other approach is the one I say, which I almost hear, never, I almost never see novice therapists actually do this, even when I tell them to do it, is just say, yep, you're right. I am an intern and I, I am two months into this. And yes, I am 23, and which means I actually don't know that much about how the world works yet. And I'll know more when I'm older and I'll be a better therapist when I gain more experience. Yep, you're, you've got it. You, I'm totally new. But I'm going to work so hard to help you. And I've learned a lot so far in graduate school, and I have a team of people helping me with you. So if you ever feel like I'm not doing a good job, just tell me. But you're right. I, I am new, and I am young, and there's some pros and cons to that. Um, and again, if you, if you ever have any concerns, you let me know. If you say stuff like that, someone will, someone will be like, well, this person is not being defensive. They're admitting it. They know their limitations, but man, do they come across as a professional? You know, this person is a professional. You know, st- what I tell people is stop trying to trick everyone into thinking that you're awesome as a therapist. You know, the, the ironic thing is that most therapists, as they get better, they stop trying to defend themselves that they're any good. As I get more competence, I'm... I'm I'm so much less concerned with trying to prove myself to people that I'm any good. And so if someone came to me and said, man, you, you seem like a terrible therapist. I'd be like, yeah, okay. I get it. I just, I wouldn't, I would just be like, okay, I guess that's how you see me. And I guess to you, I am a terrible therapist. You're, if that's how you see things, then yes, I have completely failed you. And I've had conversations like that before, you know, where just like, yeah, okay, I, I, thanks for the feedback. Uh, I guess I've really, I must have really screwed things up with you. You're right. You know, just, just admit it. Now, in the beginning of my career, I wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been able to do that because I was trying to defend against imposter syndrome by acting like I belonged, you know, when I absolutely did belong, but I didn't feel like I belonged. So I felt like I needed to act like I belonged. But, you know, just just admit it. And if if you admit it and the client fires you, then, then so be it. This is what I tell novice therapists all the time too. It's like, if you do something rational and competent and good and a client fires you, then you didn't want to work with them anyway. Because if they're willing to fire you just because you're young, then they're probably a difficult client to work with in general. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, if you do something terrible and your client fires you, then yeah, you should have some concern about that. And, but it happens, and you can review it. But if you do everything generally okay, and your client's like, nope, I'm out, then you can be like, oh, okay, well, okay, that's fine. I guess you didn't like me. It's a hard, it's a tall t- uh, order for a novice therapist. I mean, I remember feeling when I was, I don't know, for years in the beginning of my career, 
that I was so desperate for clients not to fire me. I was just like, God, I hope this client likes me. I, you know, and every time a client didn't fire me, I was like, okay, I'm val, I'm a valid therapist. I'm good enough. You know, it, I, I get that tremendous feeling, but, and so some of that is normal, but try to counteract that with some perspective that it's okay if a client fires you, it happens all the time. And, you know, throughout your career, you're going to have a lot of clients who aren't going to like you. It's not going to be a good fit and they're going to fire you, but you're going to have a lot more clients that are going to love you and it's going to be a good fit and you're going to work with them for a long time. All right, let's read another email here. This is from patron Alice. She writes, I have been looking everywhere for an in-depth analysis of the Markle family situation. So the Markle family is Meghan Markle married um, Prince... Prince Harry, and so uh, she's an American, and the, her family, upon learning that she was going to marry Prince Harry and there was going to be a bunch of media hype, um, her father and her half-siblings and aunts and uncles, there was all sorts of drama, you know, people trying to grab for the for money and trying to get you know back in her life and all this other stuff. But anyway, so Alice writes... I've been looking everywhere for an in-depth analysis of the Markle family situation. That is, the ongoing dynamic between Meghan Markle and her paternal family. I know that much of this situation is covered in the tabloid press. However, I am fascinated with the psychological family dynamic that is being played out, in, played out every day in the, on the international stage. I suspect that some of the members of Meghan's paternal family might suffer from cluster B personality disorders. I know you do not formally analyze real people from afar. I'm just wondering if you can break down some of the common familial dynamics we all see that might be in the Markle family and how this, be, how this is being played out in front of the whole world. Any observations would be greatly appreciated. Interesting email, uh, Patron Alice. I uh, didn't know about this until you asked and I Googled it, so... I um, So I'm just going to respond real quickly because I don't have a ton of time to look into this. Um, and I suppose if other patrons are super interested in this, I suppose I could do a deep dive on it. But in brief, I just did a little bit of research. And yeah, so her, it, it looks like her father and her father's uh, previous kids from a previous marriage or something. It seems like there there was some drama uh, in recent times, uh, the British press are saying that, wow, we thought the royal family was dysfunctional. This family is even more dysfunctional. Uh, for example, her brother, her like her older half-brother, wrote a letter to Harry s- telling Prince Harry not to marry Meghan because, he, you know, the brother thought that she was an awful person. The sister is talking to the press and saying that Meghan Markle is narcissistic and shallow and a terrible person, and Prince Harry, you know, shouldn't marry her. Uh, lots of stuff. The, the The father was seemingly trying to grab for a lot of money. I read on Wikipedia that he won, like, a lot of money in the lottery in 1990 and then spent all of it and had to file bankruptcy in like 2016. He lives in Mexico now or something. So there's all this, there's, there's the story goes on and on and on. There's like all these other elements. Like apparently Meghan Markle 
she didn't invite people to the wedding because she hadn't talked to many of her family members for a long time. Apparently she's close to her mom and, and has always been and uh, her parents are divorced anyway. So I don't know. I, I suppose I could look into this and try to figure this out, but the thoughts that I have about it are thus whenever there is a massive amount of stress on a family then you're going to see some weird things. And even though the family might consider it somewhat of, you know, a fortunate thing to have one of their family members rise to fame and prominence and money and all that kind of stuff, it's still a stress to the family. And so you're just going to see a lot of weird things happening. Just imagine for yourself, you're struggling with money, you're you're having a hard time making ends meet, you are just living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe you're having health problems and you can't pay your bills. And then all of a sudden your daughter is going to marry, uh, you know, Prince Harry of, uh, you know, in England or Britain or whatever you guys are calling it out there now. And, and you're thinking, well, maybe I could make a couple bucks off this. Maybe this, I have to strike while the iron's hot. And I think, so I think there's some of that stuff. What's really weird, though, is that her siblings would write a letter to Prince Harry saying that Meghan is a terrible person and that you shouldn't marry her. I mean, it's hard to imagine what they would be thinking. Uh, Even if you thought that, what would be the purpose of that and who would believe you? And why would you think that anyone would have sympathy for that? You know, Prince Harry announces to the world, I'm marrying Meghan Markle, and then this this estranged brother writes this letter to Prince Harry saying that she's a terrible person. Do you think Prince Harry is going to be like, Oh, well, I'm going to take the word of this rando in the United States over my love for this woman. And so it's a bit, it is a bit strange. And yeah, I agree, Alice, that, you know, cluster B starts, it starts to sniff a little bit of cluster B, but you know, it's, it's impossible to tell. I think that it's also possible that, the siblings are thinking, ooh, maybe I'll get on a reality TV show if I create enough of a hubbub, or I can get a book deal if I create enough of a hubbub. You just never know what people are thinking. And in today's world of shock and drama and TV deals and book deals and reality TV, it's just hard to know what anyone's thinking these days when it comes to stuff like this. You have someone someone has a sex tape that, you know, gets stolen and released, you know, on the internet. And you're just thinking, oh my, you know, back in the day, you just thought, oh my God, what a terrible thing for this, for these people to have this, uh, you know, private act on the internet. But for me and for many people, when you hear about a sex tape, you think, oh, they probably released it. They probably filmed it themselves and released it and acted like it was leaked but in reality, they're just trying to get fame and fortune. So it's just, it's a very strange world when it comes to fame. And fame will do some very weird things to, to some people, particularly if you're already having some issues, right? So I think that's all that I would have to say about that. I, I will also say that I never used to care about the royal family until two things. One, I started watching The Crown on Netflix a couple years ago and really loved it that the TV show and uh, also I went to London last year and 
I, it was sort of the last couple days in London and, and I'm thinking, ah, you know, what am I going to do? And, and so it's like, well, I guess you got to go to Buckingham Palace. You know, you got to go to the, the Royal Palace. And I, and I didn't really want to do it. It wasn't on my agenda. I just thought, well, I, I'm sure everyone goes there and I'm sure it's really dumb. But having been there and actually walking around and seeing the history and, and learning about, and after watching the crown too, it's, it actually is, is kind of cool. It's just a, it's a cool part of uh, Western history and of, of Great Britain and the world history really. And, uh, so for that reason, I, I, I'm, I'm interested now and I, every once in a while I'll watch a YouTube documentary about the Royal family and, uh, and you know it's a, it's an interesting story that I've talked about this before I did a a semi deep dive into the history going back generations of the royal family and what I discovered was a long string of dysfunctional parenting styles because the the way you're raised when you're a royal is really quite dysfunctional. You're, you're very much separated from your parents because your parents have a lot of things to do. And so you have all these kids that are raised by nannies. But of course, if you're the future king of the free world, as you know, people were, because uh, Great Britain was a, was a major or the major world power uh, for a time, and you have a nanny, you're not necessarily going to think very much of your nanny. And nannies often will go away, you know. So you grow up with these um, with these insecure attachment issues and then proceed to parent in a way that is commensurate of that insecure attachment, which just, you know, pushes the insecure attachment through the generations. And then the kids or the young adults will be attracted to other people with insecure attachment because that's how things work. And then they have kids and blah, blah, blah. And so there's just been a lot of suffering, even going down to Princess Di and Charles. They had uh, a lot of conflict, and it, it seemed like there was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of hurt. And, uh, you know, I hope I just hope Prince William and Prince Harry have been somewhat protected from that. It's, it's hard to say. So when I hear about uh, Prince Harry being attracted to Meghan Markle, who comes from what seems to be, at least on the surface from tabloid information, a chaotic family, it doesn't surprise me because people are often attracted to people who have similar attachment issues. So, you know, we'll see. And it's not like they're doomed. Harry and Meghan could absolutely uh, through... It seems like Harry... And William are open to even psychological issues. I think I think William is actually a proponent of like mental health awareness. So maybe these two chaps can heal heal from the generations of pain and attachment insecurity that has been passed down to them, and they can put an end to the long string of of issues for their family, but we'll see. All right, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron, you'll get access to hundreds of premium episodes in which we do deep dives on various different things. 
I want to thank some of our new patrons here. We got Matthew. Let's see. I like to say like where they're from. Matthew from Snoqualmie. Ah, Matthew just right nearby. We got Ronan from Manitoba, Winnipeg. We have Pavel from Poland, it looks like. We have uh, Marl, or no, Marlies from Seattle. Hey, good old Seattle. Uh, we got Tom from Liverpool. We have Tanner from Fairfield, Connecticut. Tamara from Centerville, Virginia. We have Marvin from Texas. Jonathan from Florida. We got Kelly from Denver. We got Anne from Gainesville, Florida. Wait, have I talked about you, you people before? Let me skip down here. <laughs> we got, uh, let's, let's go to further back in history here. We got uh, Shalina from Mercer Island. Hey, good old Mercer Island right near Seattle. We got Jessica from Hershey, Pennsylvania. We have Dan from Calgary, Alberta. Some of you have declined uh, credit cards, it looks like, on Patreon, so you might want to go there. A lot, of, a lot of declined, uh, uh, maybe people are changing their, their, you know, credit card. They need to, you need to update. Come on, people, go to Patreon, update your goddamn credit cards. Uh, Colette from Austin, Samantha from Brookdale, California, Chrissy from Hawaii, Hawaii, beautiful Hawaii. We got Suzanne from Brooklyn, Elliot from Great Britain. Brighton, Brighton, is that how you say that? Brighton and Hove. Anyway, thank you so much for becoming a patron, you all and all the rest of y'all. So let's get to another email. All right, this next email is from Peter. Peter wrote in, I've listened to your podcast with Yuval Laor about fetishes, and I have a question. You said that there's more fetishes nowadays because children are not exposed to normal sexuality like before. I agree with what you said, but on the other hand, a lot of trauma is caused by kids being exposed to too much sexual content. Can you advise on what would be a good enough way to manage what looks like some sort of contra- wait? Uh, well, so they're pointing. Peter is pointing out that um, you know. So in in the episode when we talked about sexual fetishes and how they develop, there's strong evidence that suggests that. In the past, we uh, had less fetishes, and that was because children, by the nature of the fact that people didn't have privacy as much as they do today, children were exposed to their parents or their older siblings or their aunts and uncles or maybe even their grandparents having sex a lot more often. And therefore, uh, at so, so the theory goes that children at a certain age are susceptible to learning about what sex is. And that's probably around, you know, childhood years. And the idea goes is that when they have a, when children develop their first initial, what I might call sexual charges, whatever caused them to have a sexual charge will encode in them a template upon which they will act out their sexual urges later in life. So in today's world, since most American kids have no knowledge of their parents having sex or their older siblings having sex or their aunts and uncles or their grandparents, they end up 
having to look for other things that approximate what sexuality is. Like they might see a shoe on a foot of their mother's friend. And when they get a sexual charge from that, from the leg of, of the you know mother's friend and they see a shoe on it, then later on in life, they will develop a shoe fetish and maybe even to the point where they can only have an orgasm or get aroused when a high heel shoe is involved. Whereas if that kid had been exposed instead of the leg and the shoe was exposed to uh, some older people having normal sex, then that kid would uh, encode that into their brain and, and would later on uh, crave and have urges to have quote unquote normal vanilla sex. So that, I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to explain it rather quickly. And so what Peter is saying, and, and so in the episode, what we, what me and Yuval Lohr were saying was that in order for people to develop normally, we might want to rethink the way that we protect kids from regular everyday sexuality. You know, there's a lot of kids who will develop fetishes for pornography because they're very, or certain acts in pornography because the very first exposure to sexuality that they get is on the internet. And there's a, there, we don't, we're not born with an innate sexuality. We're born with the susceptibility to certain, we're all born with sexual urges, but as we grow and develop, we start associating things with sexuality. And so if all you see as a young person is a particular version of sexuality, then you might be limited. So the idea goes is that prior to 50, 100 years ago, people lived in small you know, homes. And a lot of times you didn't have any barriers between you and your parents, or at the very least, there was minimal barriers. And so you wouldn't necessarily witness your parents having sex, but you would know they were having sex or you would hear them or maybe every once in a while, you might even catch a glimpse of them or something. And that this would help the child to develop a, a sense of what is sexuality, what's good sexuality, and what and it will encode in them things that they will later on have urges to do. So, uh, so what I, so we're saying is, you know, maybe we should rethink how we, you know, do this in our society. And so Peter is saying is like, well, wait. So what I thought was kids who are exposed to sexuality too early in life, I thought that was traumatizing to them. So yeah, th- th- this is good questions. Being the, the this is actually a pretty broad topic. Being exposed to sexual material as a child is a pretty complicated experience. When when we think about sex in our society, we tend to be fairly black and white. Like in this instance, you know, if you just walked up to you know any random American and said, "What do you? Th- is it a good idea or a bad idea for your kids to see you have sex?" You know, most people would say, oh, that's a bad idea. And you'd say, like, why? It's like, well, it's traumatizing the kid. The kids shouldn't see that. It's inappropriate. There's not a lot of people that would say, well, it depends. You know, not a lot of people on the street would answer the question, well, I don't know. It kind of depends on the situation. depends on a lot of factors. You know, how much did they see? How did they see? How often did they see? How did they they react to it? How did the parents react to it? You know, because... If you walk in on your parents having sex and your parents like beat you 
you know, because you were a bad person, then you're going to learn something. You're going to learn that sex is bad and taboo and terrible and shameful. Whereas if you accidentally walk in on your parents having sex and they're just like, oh, uh, Johnny, me and your me and your mom are uh, cuddling right now. We're having some, you know, advanced cuddling times right now. And we need you to uh, go out, leave us alone for about 15 minutes. And can you please shut the door behind you? Uh, no big deal. Then that's a different sort of experience. Did the kid, how old was the kid when they saw? Um, how much did they see? Did they end up being, were the kids fascinated by it? Were the kids not fascinated by it? Were the kids scared by it? Were the kids not scared by it? So there's just a lot of things that come into play. You know, did the kid, did the kid interpret it as a loving act between their parents? Did the kid interpret it as a violent act between the parents? You know, everything just depends. And it's within a larger context of the child's life. How, how does the child see sexuality in general? How does the child see romance and, and affection in general in, in their life? Do, do they have secure attachments and this kind of thing? So it's really a very much a it depends kind of, kind of answer. But there have been some investigations into this, like, trying to speculate about our past in terms of our quote-unquote natural state when we were just evolving into our you know modern uh, species what was the typical practice well it wouldn't be it'd be hard to imagine that 200,000 years ago that children had no idea when their parents were having sex or had or had no idea when people were having sex i mean we're talking african savanna everyone is living just in a field somewhere and there's, I guess there's bushes that you could have sex in, but it'd be hard to believe that uh, kids growing up 15 years wouldn't see something. And so I, so, and the other thing is, is you, we, so we can look at that. We can speculate about that, but we can also look at our close cousins in the primate world, uh, chimps, bonobos, this sort of thing, and, and look at their behavior we can also look at mammals in general and animals in general in that no no very few animals will have sex in private right and yet ch- the the children of the of those uh you know species w- grow up just fine what you know they see their parents having sex and it doesn't damage them in any way in fact you could argue that they're learning something from the experience we just live in a highly childish Victorian uh, society that frames everything as, as, as sexuality wise as being shameful and horrible. And particularly when it comes to children and sexuality. But again, I just think about chimps, you know, they're closely related to us. So you have mommy and daddy chimp and you have children chimps and children chimps uh, watching, or at least aware of the fact that their parents are having sex or bonobos for that, for that matter. Do you think that bonobo child or that chimp child is going to grow up to be traumatized or harmed? No, but somehow when it applies to humans, it's a whole other ball of wax, right? It's like, you know, children should never be exposed to that sort of thing. It's like, that's, it's a weird thing to say, but some people, even I think Darwin talked about how, we have a unique sort of shame emotion, which might, or it, it's, it's 
particularly prominent for us. You know, we're shameful about our bodies. We're shameful about sex. We're shameful about going to the bathroom. We're shameful about all sorts of things. But again, you don't, all you got to do is look around the world to various different cultures and know that there's different people have different shame about different things. There's people around the world who have absolutely no shame about their bodies. I mean, just think about that, that there are cultures, and I'm sure you know about them, around the world where they don't wear any clothes. Women have, you know, various different boob configurations, and men have various different penis configurations, and yet they're just completely naked and everyone's fine. So we weren't innately shameful about our bodies. It's, it's a absolutely 100% cultural. Again, 200,000 years ago, I don't think we had clothes. And do you think we were shameful about our bodies back then? No. We developed this notion of shame. It's, it's something that culture developed. Now, there might be some sort of, quote-unquote, natural underpinning that blossomed into what we see today in terms of culture. But, but anyway, so uh, the, the, the last thing I'll say about this is that it's, it's well known that parents should allow their children to see them being affectionate with each other. My parents were actually very affectionate with each other, and I remember that being very sweet. I remember actually uh, it felt good to watch my parents love each other and to have that affection, physical affection for each other, you know, kissing, hugging, cuddling, this sort of thing. So we can agree on that, right? We can agree that parents should make their kids see or allow their kids to see them kissing, hugging, cuddling being affectionate and loving towards one another. Well, you know, that it's not full-on intercourse, but it's it's on the spectrum, right? So uh, now, and maybe parents should allow kids to at least have knowledge of the fact that the parents are having sex. So, but, you know, to expect, but there's this whole other thing of the cultural context, right? So say you are a suburban American family and you decide you're going to go full natural or what you believe to speculate to be full natural. And you're going to have sex in the middle of the living room and your kids are just going to be, you know, walking from their bedroom to the kitchen and they're just going to see you having sex. Well, what that might end up doing, even though that might actually be the, the way it was 200,000 years ago, which of course we'll never know, but in the context of society today, since the since that you know seven year old will have been given so many different messages around sexuality already, they might interpret that that uh, you know vision at you know s- seeing their parents having sex. That child might actually experience it as traumatizing because what they've already learned about sexuality. So in some ways, we we might have to conform to the Victorian manner because to exist outside of that Victorian culture is silly because the rest of the world is, or the rest of the, of your, the rest of your society is a Victorian sexual backward society. And, and therefore you can't uh, expect the kids to be able to process that very well. So what, what I recommend and what I have recommended to, to parents is uh, at the very least, let them see you kissing, hugging, holding hands, being affectionate, loving each other. Kids will not only learn about what that sort of thing means, but they will also be 
uh, enriched and they'll, they'll be made to feel more secure by feeling the security of that relationship. Kids love it when their parents have strong relationships. They love it. They thrive on that. They want to see their parents have a strong relationship. This isn't to say that conflict and divorce are going to ruin a child, but but they definitely take a toll on, on all children in, in one way, shape, form, or another. It's just this thing. We want our caregivers to love each other. We, we, know, we want our mothers to have a good relationship with, with their parents. We want our fathers to have good relationships with their brothers and sisters. You know, we just want our family to get along and to love each other. It makes us feel more secure, particularly when we're very young and we feel very vulnerable. As the notion goes, if they all love each other, then they're more likely to love me. If they all love each other, they're more likely to stay together, and therefore all of them will still take care of me together. If they're in conflict and divorcing each other, then I will lose half of this equation is, is the way it feels. Or if they don't like each other and they divorce each other or become estranged with one another, does that mean I'm at risk of being divorced or estranged? It's a very threatening thought to a young person. And so... Um, so along those lines, not only staying together and working on your relationships, but also making sure that you really strengthen that vision of security by having your kids see you be uh, affectionate toward each other. And maybe that means seeing, uh, you know, you come home from work and you're feeling a little, you know, uh, frisky and you do, you have a little 10 second makeout session and your kids you know, they see it, maybe they say, ew, that's gross, but they uh, might benefit from that. It might help them to learn what real sexuality is, what a real long-term relationship sort of sensuality and sexuality uh, can look like. Do they have to watch you having sex? No. But another thing that uh, I've suggested is maybe having your kids not be so unaware of the fact that you have sex. So there's, there's various different levels. So, you know, some people, some parents will be like, well, we can't have sex while the kids are at home because what if they hear you or what if they have a sense, like what are they doing in the bedroom, but you know, by themselves. And although, uh, you know, it's fine to do that, but you know, along these lines, maybe, maybe having sex while they're at home. And then maybe they knock on the door and they're like, what are you guys doing in there? And you're just like, we're just in here having some mommy and daddy time right now. Leave us alone. Or, you know, I need you to watch TV for a while. Mommy and daddy are going to spend time, have some marital time in the bedroom right now. We need, you know, so they don't, they're not, you know, witnessing the sex, but they know what's happening. And so it, it, Again, it's helpful for them to see a strong relationship. It's helpful for them to learn what a uh, loving sexual relationship can look like and just all that kind of stuff. It's all general sex positivity. Having said all that, can these things lead to trauma for children? Uh, the things I'm suggesting, probably not, but, you know, maybe. It's just hard to predict. Every kid's different. Every context is different. Kids are sensitive to certain things. Some kids will become obsessed on certain things that they shouldn't be. And so you just can't really predict. If you spend enough time, as I have, with enough families in therapy, there's just a lot of variation. And you just have to, you just have to see what happens. But the point is, is that our society, for, whatever, for, uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons, 
is creating a circumstance for young people in which they're not developing sexually the way that they they might better develop. That's that's a weird sentence, but we have a society right now where kids for the most part are developing sexually fine. I mean, you know, the vast majority of kids today grow up to have completely normal sex lives. But there's some people who are being harmed by the Victorian attitudes, by the lack of exposure to normal sexuality, by the necessity of, uh, or by the ubiquity of internet sexuality and that sort of thing. And it, for some people, it's kind of making them a little weird. Having said that, there's nothing wrong with being weird as, you know, being weird sexually. If you have a fetish for um, high heel shoes, then great. There's, you know, just because it's out of the norm or some kind of strange thing, or it could be labeled a pathology in the DSM, which is backwards sexually too, because it emerges from a backward society. It, it's okay. It's fine. You know, as long as you're, as long as it's consensual and you're not harming anybody, you know, whatever. But there are some people who really lament the fact that they can only get off with a shoe and they would rather be able to get off in, in other ways, you know, more, more flexibility or ways that other people are more willing to participate in that kind of thing. Anyway, so I hope that answers your question, Peter. I got another email here from a patron who is really sad because her therapist, whom she really feels connected to and is, you know, very appreciative of her therapist is, in in her words, dying. And I don't know exactly what that means, but probably the therapist has been diagnosed with some sort of terminal condition and has informed his or her clients, I think it's a him, and he's informed his clients that he is in fact going to die at some point. And so he is doing his, his uh, you know, duty to inform his clients so that they can prepare for that loss and also uh, prepare to find another therapist. And this uh, emailer is asking, how do I find another therapist? And also, this is terrible. It's a terrible loss for me, which... Yeah, I, I could imagine how how horrible that would be. You know, it's interesting to think about because, of course, when someone dies that's close to us, it's hard for us, as we all know, and we are given, um, you know, some. I mean, my general thesis about grief is that all grief is marginalized and not paid enough attention to by the griever and by people around the griever. But there are certain losses that receive at least a little bit more support. For example, if you lose your spouse or your parent or your child, people tend to give support to that. Not enough support, in my opinion, but at least some. But I wonder, and and there's all sorts of other losses that aren't supported, like if your animal dies or if your ex-spouse dies, sometimes you're not even invited to the funeral. Or if your therapist dies, or your physician dies, or, you know, something like that, or your client dies, you know, there's not a lot of support for that. So uh, yeah, I'm, I just can't imagine how horrible that would be. And in terms of finding another, you know, what she was asking is, I, 
I went on Psychology Today, and what she said was, it was funny. She said, everyone's um, profile on Psychology Today, so Psychology Today has uh, just thousands of therapists, and it's like the it's like the main database for finding a therapist. For some reason, Psychology Today established established themselves early in that service, and we all use that service. And so, Psychology Today, there's profiles. You know, each page there's a picture and their general neighborhood they're working in, how much they charge, and you know, they talk about themselves and this kind of thing. And she is saying, so I'm looking for another therapist and everyone's psychology and psychology today profile. I want to punch them in the face. <laughs> and she's, she says, these people, let me, let me actually look up exactly what she said. Most psychology today profiles I've seen make me want to punch the therapist in the face. All those profiles seem so fake and dumb. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Okay. I mean, I could see that for sure. And yeah, it's hard to look at a profile and say, okay, is this the person that is going to be there for me? Is this the person that's going to listen to my deepest, darkest anxieties? Is this the person that's going to make me feel cared about and loved and secure? Is this the person that's going to heal me and help heal me from my traumas relationally and otherwise? Is this the person that's going to be there for me? It it's hard to it's hard to believe in a picture, and it's hard to know who you're going to connect with. And I find that people often make a decision quite a bit based on the on the photograph, which I always tell my supervisees: make sure you have a good welcoming photo. But in reality, you can't tell from a photo if a therapist is going to be a good match for you, and yeah, it is it is kind of sad, but it's the same thing when it comes to dating, really. You, know, you can't look at a Tinder profile and say, I'm going to marry that person. You have to meet them. You have to meet them you, or trying to find a friend. You can't just look at a picture and go like, that person and I are going to be best friends. You just have to test them out. And the same goes for therapists. In my experience, it takes about three to five sessions to really figure out whether or not someone's going to work out for you. So what I recommend people do is you look for therapists in your area. Also ask for referrals from people in your area, because sometimes that can go a long way. Uh, you know, tell me about, uh, does anyone know a good therapist who has openings? And that can be good. But if you're just sort of shooting blind, then what I recommend is you see at least three therapists for at least three sessions each and make a decision from there. It takes, you know, a while to get to know. So the first session, you could know after the first session, honestly. After the first session, if you're not feeling it, by all means, just move on. But you could feel it in the first and maybe the second, but by the third, fourth, fifth session, you pretty much know what's going on. For me, I had a therapist once, and I think I saw him like six times, and I definitely knew by like the fourth, fifth, sixth session that he was not the therapist for me. And so I terminated and moved on. It's, it's, it takes a while. And yeah, it sucks. And it's time, time consuming. But man, is it worth it. When you find a therapist that you connect with, you, you might talk with that person every week for years. So I think it's worth putting in the effort. All right, let's go on to another email. No, in fact, let's just end the episode right there. 
I feel like I've yammered long enough. That is that episode in which I answered some of your emails. Uh, Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. You know that you do. You know you deserve it because you do.